Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Book of 1 Peter near the end of your Bible, um, just a few pages back from the book of Revelation. Welcome to exile. In many ways, today I'm kind of delivering um, bad news, beginning bad news, then turning to good news. Um, The Christian America, a lot of you have always thought you lived in, is on its deathbed. I think a lot of us know that. Some of us know it and we're really scared about it. Some of us know it, but we're just holding out hope that something that, that somebody's going to get in Washington and fix things. Um, but if we know anything from history, um, having the right people in the government does not change the heart of a nation. The heart of our nation's growing darker and darker. The only thing possible that can change it is um, the gospel be proclaimed and revival break out in our nation. That's the only thing that can happen. Government cannot help you. An elected leader cannot help you. This doesn't mean we don't love and fight for freedom. It doesn't mean we don't treasure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but we prepare ourselves for different days ahead, different days ahead where we're in exile. The Christian church is going to face days likely ahead in the U.S. that they've never faced in the U.S. before. Being outcast, though, has been the story of most of the church in history. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, most of the time the church has been outcast in the world. We've had a unique window in the last 300 years in this country where we haven't been on the outside, but that's passing away. Christians in America are going to have to learn how to live out their faith when the country is not their home. I'm not going to stand here and say that there's days coming when we're going to get a beaten and killed. There's some preachers that will do that and scare people to death. Uh, I don't know that it will ever get like that Um, because of the fact that, at least right now, we've seen plenty of times, even the last year, the government has tried to forbid church from gathering, and the church has just gathered. The church hasn't let them do that. Um, One specific California famous pastor named John Arthur. Some of you may have his study Bible. Some of you may have some of his books. Um, He did like all of us pastors did during COVID. He stopped having church and started preaching to a video camera in his sanctuary. And people just started showing up and sitting there and listening to him. And eventually the entire church came and sat and listened to him and gathered again at full capacity. Whether or not there's wisdom in meeting in full capacity when what we were in during COVID, um, they did that. And the government came after them. California government took them to court several times and they won every single time that they won every single time. And so, I don't know if the church will let it get to the point that, that it's that bad, but we're going to continue to be more and more hated in our country, the churches. 
God has not left us without help in that. First Peter, the book of First Peter, is written to Christians in the exact same situation that we're in. It's something like a manual on how to live in a culture that is against the church, against the Christian faith. I was planning to preach First Peter last summer, but was going to start it this same week in connection with July 4th, but then COVID happened, and I wasn't going to preach this on the internet. And so I waited till now. First Peter's laying out the way Christians might the things they must do and the attitudes they must have in a culture that is against them. So we're going to read the first 12 verses today. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. First Peter starts out addressing his his people. He's writing to Christians, several Christians who are um, in a dispersion spread throughout the land. He's writing to Christians, not just to them, but to you. He's writing to you. What does he call us? Elect exiles. Elect exiles. Exiles, two words, we're going to deal with both of them. First, exiles. It means being rejected, being on the outside, being strangers in a strange land. You know, we really shouldn't be surprised to be exiles in America. We follow a Lord who was arrested and executed. He promised us that if we follow him, we would be persecuted. He promised that. But maybe you're looking around wondering, how do we get here? How do we get to this point? Because many of you grew up in a time when, when it was not like that. Many of you grew up in a time when they prayed in schools, when you had Bible reading in school. How did we get to a point where, like, Christians are the most hated group of people in the United States? How did we get there? Well, to understand that, we got to kind of briefly look at, at where Christianity has gone since Jesus ascended to now. So, understand this. Jesus ascended to heaven around 31, 33 AD. The first three centuries of Christianity, they were on the margins, The Roman Empire was against them because they would not bow their knee to Caesar. They would not worship the emperor. They could only worship Jesus. He was Lord. But about three centuries into history, 
there was an emperor named Constantine. Constantine, um, Christian, but he was fighting a war, and during that war, he had a vision, he had a dream, and in that dream, Jesus told him he was going to win the battle that he was in, and he won the battle. So he went back home, and he made Christianity the official religion of Rome. Pastors were now giving advice to the emperor when formerly they were being fed to the lions. But when Christianity is at the center of the culture, it usually becomes corrupted, and that's exactly what happened. Um, actually linked the fall of the Roman Empire to Constantine making Christianity the, the official religion. The Roman Empire fell because of that. But as all of this happened, Christianity had a bigger influence in that it's the official religion, so it spreads to all the known world. And the Western world is born. That is the North and South America and Europe. That's what we consider the Western world. Eastern world is the other side of the world. Um, and during, as the Western world began, Christian civilization began. As Christianity spread wider, some nations had the majority of people in it who identified as Christians. And as generations came, people began to see America and other nations as a Christian nation. They wrongly began to believe because you're born in a Christian nation, you're a Christian, even though the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible doesn't know of you being born in a Christian land, therefore you're a Christian. No, it says you've got to be born again. You've you got to be born again. Thus, you end up with a group of people in a nation who ultimately have, um, you, you don't have a Christian nation in that case, you have a pagan one because all the people think they're Christians when they're not. Christians became the center of the culture. They had once been on the outside, now they were on the inside. They got to determine the laws and the ethics of the nation. And we think that's a good thing, but the fact is, generally, the more a government is against Christianity, the more it grows and flourishes. The more it's given a special seat in the government, the more it's weak, stale, and soft. If you don't believe me, compare Christianity in America to Christianity in China. Christianity in China is exploding on the scene, hated by the government, killed, persecuted. It's actually said, if it keeps growing at the state that it is, in 2050, China will be a majority Christian nation because so many people are coming to Christ there. You compare that to America, and more and more people are leaving the faith. It's illegal in China. It's legal here. It's growing in China. It's dying here. But then you throw one more historical event into it. It's called the Enlightenment. Happened in the 1800s, the Enlightenment. You likely learned about this in school. I did, but if you're like me, you didn't care, so you didn't pay attention. So allow me to enlighten you what it is. I expected that to be funny. I guess not. Um, the Enlightenment was a movement of philosophers and thinkers who began to challenge the wisdom of their day. They began to challenge the Christian wisdom of their day. Uh, they, they came to the conclusion that our mind and our ability to think is king. It gets to determine everything. So you saw people begin to doubt the truth of Scripture and specific, more specific portions of Scripture. Many people were influenced by this. If you go up to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, you can see there the Jefferson Bible, the Jefferson Bible made by Thomas Jefferson. What Thomas Jefferson, our president, our president did was he was influenced by the Enlightenment. So because the Enlightenment is going on, oh, we can think and we can see and we can imagine. And so we've never seen miracles happen like in the Bible. So obviously they're not true. So Thomas Jefferson goes through with a blade and cuts out all the portions of the Bible that are miraculous and leaves in just the morality stuff. And he has a new Bible published with just those verses. You can go see it in the Smithsonian Museum. It's the Jefferson Bible. He was influenced by the Enlightenment. So for the first time in 1,400 years, 
The culture began to say, the church doesn't get to decide what's right and wrong. We'll use our brains to do that. And now we get to our day. That's the kind of thinking that has led to individualism, materialism, and consumerism of our day. You are a lot more influenced by the Enlightenment than you think. It changed church into an individualistic and consumeristic thing. In the minds of Americans, church is not there to be a body of Christ where we fellowship, build one another up, and offer praise to God so that we're strengthened and can go out and be His witnesses. No, it's a place to serve me and my needs. Serve me and my needs. I go for my own personal benefit rather than the benefit of other people. People go to church like they go to restaurants in America. You know, you go to a restaurant, you go to one restaurant for their chicken tenders, one for their fries, one for their milkshake, one for their atmosphere. People in America go to one church for a preacher. He's a hip, cool guy with skinny jeans. One for their music. They really like the music. One for the children's program. That They do that. There's people who do that. They don't belong to any one church. They go to all kinds of different churches for all the different things. And if I don't like it, we leave. And if one of the employees upsets me, never coming back. Writing a bad review on the internet about them. I, I don't have to know people there. I can just slip in, listen to the sermon, slip out, and I have to talk to anybody. Sermons in churches became less about the character and nature of God, or even about, about the Bible for that matter, and more about how to improve my life and make me a better person. Created a religion that um, philosophers, not philosophers, but, but smart people, scholars have called it moralistic therapeutic deism. You don't have to know that word, just understand moralistic, it's all about morals, all about being a good person. Therapeutic, all about making me feel good. And deism, deism is a belief that God doesn't interact with humanity, he's just off distant in heaven. That's the religion of the United States. Teach me how to be a good person, make me feel good, God's not really there in my personal life. That's what this has created. When church becomes this, you have to pull a lot of strings to keep people there. And there's no amount of smoke machines and beach balls that will keep people, keep unregenerate people at your church. And so people stop coming. They justify it by saying, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I can be a completely faithful Christian and never go to church. According to Hebrews 10, you can't. You can't. So the church has lost its foundation and its strength in America. So as the sands of times go, the church loses its cultural influence and is pushed to the margins. And it hasn't stopped since. We see less and less Christian influence in America day by day year by year. So we just came out in June, um, we, we just finished June, which has been dubbed LGBTQ Pride Month. Um, nearly every company in the month of June um, put sections on their website, changed their logo with a rainbow celebrating homosexuality, transgenderism, and wait for it, polygamy. Polygamy. There was one company in particular who had ads, father, mother, child, next one, Man, man, next one, woman and woman. Next one, two men, one woman, child. Polygamy. But that doesn't surprise me, frankly, because when you have no standard for what marriage is, marriage can be anything. It can be anything. If marriage is not a man and a woman committed to one another for life, it can be, if it's just about two people who love each other, the culture is going to drift to it can be anything. Like, just wait. The next step is a 45-year-old can marry a 10-year-old because there's no standard on it for them. They will come up with anything. Uh, you can marry your dog eventually. You can marry yourself. You can marry your iPhone. Like, just wait. It's coming with that snowball of logic. 
I'm not that old. But I can remember a day when companies would have lost business by, by putting that on their website, not gained it. So in my 29 years of life, well, actually, we could just say 14 years because I didn't care about this stuff when I was five. So in my 14 years of paying attention to this stuff, that's how much our culture's changed. Day by day, year by year, Christians in America are being pushed to the outside, to exile. That's not going to change no matter who's in office. That's the heart of our nation. We are elect exiles. We're exiles. We're on the outside, verse 1, but we're elect. We're elect. We're not just exiles. We're elect exiles. Elect is a word used 22 times in the New Testament to refer to Christians. They are elect. It means chosen. If exile meant rejected, elect means chosen. We're the rejected chosen. We're the rejected chosen. In many, in many churches today, on July 4th, pastors are preaching that America is God's chosen people. Love our country, but if you study your Bible, there's no chosen geopolitical region. I thought Israel was, though. Well, sort of. Uh, actually, the Bible says a lot of times not everybody descended from Abraham as part of Israel. Um, it's the people who have faith in the Son of God that are part of the chosen people of Israel. But what was the purpose of them being chosen? To bring about the Messiah that he would save the whole world, not just Israel. He would save all the nations. Look down at 1 Peter 2.9. We're going to get to this verse in a few weeks. You are a chosen race. He's speaking to Christians, remember. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy nation. You Christians are a holy nation. You are a chosen race. You're a chosen group of people. He's, he's not speaking to America there. He's not speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the church. The church is God's chosen nation on the planet. The church is his chosen nation on the planet. The people who have repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and been bought by the blood of him. That is, if you're a Christian, you have more national identity with a Christian in the Middle East than with a non-Christian in America. You have more brotherhood with a Chinese Christian than an American atheist. You do. You're bought by Jesus' blood. You're more in tune with them than you are with somebody next door who doesn't believe in Jesus. This changes how you read so many passages in the Bible that are always applied to America. Psalm 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Well, not every person in America's God is the Lord, so the nation's God is not the Lord. Every person in the church, their God is the Lord. Blessed is that nation. That's the nation. Or 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will forgive them of their sins and heal their land. That's not about America. America is not God's people. That's about the church, God's people. If my people, the church, pray, I will heal their land. So pray, pray. Meaning, let's pray. We don't pray. We pray to transition musicians on stage in church, and we pray such generic prayers you'd never even know they were answered if God did answer them. We must pray. We must pray. We're the church. We're his people. Christians are the exiles of the nation on the planet. They are God's elect exiles. They are God's chosen people. You were rejected by the world, but you're chosen by God. You're not rejected by God. So Peter's writing about this, and he 
He goes on to talk about their, their hope in verses 3 through 12. And just, he can't do anything but just break out in praise in the beginning of verse 3. Like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know any other way to start this of what I'm about to talk to you about. Blessed be God and Jesus. I don't know what else to say. Because the good news he's about to share is the greatest news in the history of the world. He can do nothing but just start out praising the Lord for it. Does this good news lead you to worship do you stand in awe of what God has done for you in Christ? Because if you don't, how, you, how will it ever be enough for you as the rising tide against Christians comes in America? How are you going to survive? He, he says, according to his great mercy, verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. The most significant event in history is the resurrection of Jesus. Nothing else triumphs over that. No event in history you can point to is more significant than Jesus bursting out of the grave alive. Scripture describes it as he is the firstborn dead, meaning we're going to follow him. He was born first out of the grave. He's not born, he's not created, but he's the first one to be born from the dead. He's the first one to come back to life. We're going to follow him in that. He rose, we're going to rise. He says that we're born Again, that's a word that we often throw around in church, but we do that so much we honestly forget what it means. We forget what it means. Think about your first birth. I'm sure you remember it. Think about your first birth. You didn't do any work. You just showed up hungry. That's all you did. Somebody else did all the work. You just showed up hungry. One minute you were not alive. You did not exist. And suddenly you were in your mother's womb. And nine months later, you entered the world kicking and screaming, and life came, and you were completely different than you were before. Nine months before that, you did not exist at all. You, weren't, you didn't exist as some spirit out there in the heavens. You did not exist, period. And all of a sudden, you existed. God spoke you into existence. And suddenly, you were in the world breathing, crying, and seeing everything. You were... Now think about being born again. Same idea. Some people think that, that this just means now suddenly, like, having the right values or something, and certainly that does come. But, but it's not that we're the same person we just believe right now. There's a new birth that happens. There's a new birth that happens. We were one way, now we're another way. We were this way, now we're that way. We, are, we were dead, now we're alive. Scripture says that, that God puts his Holy Spirit in us. He gives us a new heart. Desires transforms us. It's a spiritual picture of what will happen one day when the graves open up. You're going to be born again from the grave. All because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have living hope in this. Live hope. We have an inheritance, he says. You ever gotten an inheritance from a family member? You know, when they die, you get it. Maybe it hasn't come yet. Maybe they're still living. And so you, they've guaranteed you you're going to get something one day, but you haven't. Um, maybe your grandfather's going to leave you his farm. Maybe your mom leaves you half her bank account or something. You don't get it right now. You don't have it right now, but it's guaranteed to you. When they die, you get it. It will be yours to own. It's an inheritance. You have an inheritance coming to you if you know Jesus. 
You have an inheritance coming to you. Partially when you die, partially when history ends and Jesus returns. When you die, your soul goes to heaven, your body goes into the ground. When Jesus comes again, one day your body comes out of the grave, meets your soul, and you live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. You become a resident of that place. That is the salvation of your soul this passage is talking about. Your inheritance, look at verse 4, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. It's being guarded by God's power. No one's going to take it away from you. No one's going to diminish it or tarnish it. You're not going to get it and it's going to be all rusted. You're going to have this glorious inheritance. It's really helpful for people who are being tarnished by the world, isn't it? He says it's imperishable. Everything on this earth perishes. Name me something on this earth, it perishes, I promise. Our body will perish. Your car will perish. Your, your house will perish. Your money will perish. Every blade of grass is going to die. Every bit of food is going to spoil. Every mountain is going to crumble. Every star is going to burn out. The earth itself has a death date. But your living hope does not. Your living hope does not have a death date. Our hope is waiting to be revealed when Jesus comes. What's that mean? That means your hope's not in the past. Your hope is not in the past. Some day back when you were a kid when America was better, your hope's not there. That's not coming back. Your inheritance is not in the past. Your inheritance is in the future. It's in the future. When Christ comes and wipes away all sin and evil from the world, when all the enemies of God are defeated, when the world is remade and the eternal kingdom is ours to be citizens of, when righteousness reigns, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the water covers the sea, when you finally see the Savior's face and behold His beauty. That's your inheritance. It's not here yet. It's not here yet. It's like Peter's telling his readers, don't give up. Your victory is won. Do not give up. Hold fast. Because trials will come. Trials will come. That's what he talked about in 6 through 12. Trials. Trials. He says various, verse 6, various trials will come. When 1 Peter talks about trials and suffering, this is important for you to know as we work through this book. When, when it talks about trials and suffering, he's not talking about things that happen naturally to people. Sickness and pain and death. Not talking about that. He's talking specifically about suffering that comes from other people as the result of being a Christian. And it will come. Jesus and his apostles were persecuted. You will be too. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You shouldn't be surprised or offended by that. Jesus promised. We suffer hatred from the world. And when I say that, don't just think liberals. Frankly, Jesus was killed by the conservatives of his day. He was. He came into the world, and they wanted him to come make, um, make Israel great again. He, he was here to bring in an eternal kingdom that had nothing to do with Israel, and they didn't want that. They killed him. Don't even think politically. You know, Revelation describes the beast. He has authority over the whole world. The beast controls the government. He controls religious movements of our day. He controls the economy. He controls all the pleasures of this world, all the institutions. The whole world is under the beast persuasion. So Democrat or Republican, you should expect it to hate the church. Any other system of this world, you should expect opposition. Hollywood? Yeah. The IRS? Yeah. Restaurants? Yeah. The media? No matter their political leaning? Yeah. You, you should expect they're all under the beast persuasion. We will suffer hatred 
because the devil influences the whole world. But we rejoice, verse 8. We rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory in our sufferings. You know, I rarely rejoice in my discomfort, but we're called to. We're called to. We're called to. There was a lady um, that lived during the Holocaust named Cory Ten Boom, and I meant to ask my wife to tell me the whole story of this, so I'm going to do it the best I can. Um, so Cory Ten Boom um, is famous. She would, um, her and her sister made a little private area in their house, and they would take in Jews during the Holocaust and get them in this hiding place, keep them in the secret place, and protect them from the Nazis. Well, they eventually got arrested for that. Eventually, the Nazis found out they got arrested, and they brought them to this concentration camp, and the guards at the concentration camp obviously weren't nice people, and so um, they would occasionally come and um, harm them, right? It's a concentration camp. So one night, they put Corey and her sister in this certain room, and um, this room was filled with fleas. There's fleas everywhere. I don't want to be in fleas. They were fleas. Fleas all over them like a pile of dogs, the guards didn't come in and hurt them. And Corey told her sister, let's rejoice in the fleas. Let's rejoice in the fleas. We rejoice in our, com in our discomforts. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice because we have an inheritance and a victory beyond this. We have a victory that is coming. Trials are allowed by God, it says, to test your faith. If necessary, God might allow you to go through trials in the form of opposition from others. Why? For the testing of your faith, like gold in a furnace. God, gold is one of the most durable of all substances on the earth, but you have to put it in fire to purify it, to burn off the impurities. That's why James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Being hated by the world burns off the impurities of your faith. It makes you let go of the things holding you to this world because this world doesn't want you. This world is not your home. It makes you run to Jesus instead of and cling closer to him because he is your home. He's the one you will have, who will have you. Maybe the reason your faith is so weak is you've never had to suffer for it. Being for your faith might be exactly what you need. Imagine what he could do in you if you choose him over the world in the face of opposition. Imagine what that would do for your soul. Endure testing, he says, to obtain the salvation of your soul. Verse 10 through 12 talks about how glorious this is. The prophets longed for it. The prophets looked ahead to it. The, the angels in heaven literally longed to look into the salvation that we're talking about. The angels see God every day, and they're still overwhelmed by the salvation that he brings Peter starts out this book glorying in our salvation because it's what we need. It's our living hope. Fundamental to your identity is not your citizenship on earth. It's your citizenship in heaven. You will not know how to suffer here if you put your hope in your American citizenship over your heavenly citizenship. You will suffer wrongly. So we lament the death of Christian America. Certainly it's going to be sad to see it go. It's going to be a harder place to live when the culture is not influenced by Christian values and ethics. It's simply proven that societies that operate on these things always flourish better. Um, that's why America is the most prosperous nation in the world for now. 
I certainly lament that the world that I've always known is passing away, but I both lament it and I embrace it. I love our country. I love the history of our country. I love the ideas that our country was built upon, but I've not put my hope in her. My citizenship is in heaven, and from it I await a savior. I love that this nation is where I was born, and Lord willing, where I get to raise my kids and die. But I recognize America is not eternal. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Nations start and nations come to an end. God is the one who remains the same forever on his throne. Put your hope in him. There are so many opportunities before us in the age we're living. Let me give you three to close us. First, we have a major problem in our country of cultural Christianity, and it's dying away. Cultural Christianity being, I'm a Christian because I'm an American, or because I'm a Republican, or because my grandma took me to church a couple times when I was a kid. And, and people who identify as Christians but haven't submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus haven't been born again. When Christian America dies, cultural Christianity dies with it. And so we're going to have a giant mission field. We're going to have a giant mission field of people who stopped identifying as Christians because they no, it no longer gave them cultural benefit to be one. And it's no joke that Tifton's full of these kinds of people. It's no joke. There's something like 40,000 people in Tiff County, but of the 30 Baptist churches in Tifton, in our association, only something like 5,000 people are there on any given Sunday. 40,000, 5,000, that, that number's not even technically accurate since so many of you don't even live in Tiff County. You live in Turner County. That's, of course, not including the other denominations, but don't you see that there are lost people all around you who think they're Christians? Don't you see that the fields are ripe for harvest? Second, we're going to have to actually take our faith seriously in this day. As opposition to our faith rises, we're going to have to take our faith seriously. It's going to have to mean something to us. We're going to, have, we're going to tell people we're Christians and they're going to mock us for it. If your faith means nothing to you, you will leave it when that happens. But if your faith means something, you will hold to it stronger when that happens. And finally... The church is going to flourish like you've never seen before, like you've never seen before. The church always flourishes when it's on the margins of society, on the outside, in exile. Some of you have been praying for a revival your entire lives. You're about to see those prayers answered, but you just might not have thought that it would be answered like this. We're going to see that. We're going to see that more and more Christians are hated, the more and more they take their faith seriously the more people come to Jesus, because obviously there's something to this Jesus if people are willing to endure this for him. People wouldn't receive the ridicule like this and continue being Christians. These are the things we're going to see over the next several years and decades. I hope you see that though you may be scared for it to come, the opportunities are endless of what God will do as we are elect exiles in this nation. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you and I pray, for, um, I pray for us. Lord, I pray for us as our world's changing. Our world's changing, and we know that. Lord, may we not put our hope in this world, but in the world to come. 
Lord, may we, of course, continue to fight and defend freedom and fight and treasure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all those things that you've provided us in this great nation. But Lord, ultimately, this is not our home. Heaven is our home. Make us long for that home and that home alone. And may we cling closer to Jesus no matter what happens in the years to come. Lord, give us living hope in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together now just to get you ready for our